you'll see the map on the screen of our current church, Thyatira. Of the seven churches we are taking a look at, uh, Thyatira was probably the least important of all seven of them. It was not exactly a um, vacation spot. Uh, one commenter I read said it would be kind of like Flint, Michigan. <laughs> and I don't know much about Flint, Michigan, but that's not much of a vacation spot. If you went there at all, chances are you just drove right through town. Uh, it was an old Union-dominated city and was known for bronze weapons that they would polish to shine like gold. It was also a place where uh, they um, produced cloth dyed both red and purple. Now, some of you may remember a person in the New Testament who did that as well. You can read that in Acts chapter 16. Her name was Lydia. And Lydia was from Thyatira, but met Paul while he was ministering in Philippi and starting the church to which he wrote later the book of Philippians. Now, economically, this town was dominated by these trade guilds or what we call unions. It's very much of a union city. And it mixed uh, their trade with paganism and immorality. So if you were a carpenter or a painter uh, or a metal worker, uh, you had to join that trade guild, which met in a pagan temple. And along with all of the business that the unions would cover in these pagan temples, there was also idol worship, there was drunkenness, and there was rampant sexual perversion going on. And you could not say, I want to be in the guild, but I want no part of the, I don't want no part of the perversion, I just want to be here to worship, or I don't want anything to do with that. You could not do that. And so it's kind of ironic uh, that this church, the least important in the least important city should receive the longest message. This is the longest one in this whole list. Because in Jesus' eyes, there is no such thing as a small church. I find that encouraging because this is kind of still a small church. Uh, You cannot find a single word in the New Testament that makes you think that Jesus somehow favors megachurches or big churches more than the little ones. And though big churches tend to get most of the publicity today, by and large, the work of Jesus today goes forward in churches of less than 100. Uh, It may surprise you that the average size of the church in America is about 75. And that's not uncommon throughout the rest of this world. So we're going to ask this question today, kind of lead into this. So what does Jesus know about churches and what does Jesus actually have to say to churches? And I hope today that you don't say, well, this is Barry telling us what we should be doing. No, I want you to understand this is what God is saying to us today. This is what you need to know about church. And this is what you need to say about the church. And maybe another way is this is what you need to hold on to in the church. So here's the very first thing. And that's that Jesus knows the truth about churches. I mean, he is the ultimate authority. And I've worked for church doctor ministry off and on doing church consultation. But what I know and what my boss above me, Kent Hutter, knows about churches pales in comparison to what God knows about churches. Now, his message begins in verse 18. It's a little description of Jesus. He said, the son of God. And by the way, put that down. That's that's kind of a (laughs) that's a hot button word today. The son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, this is the only time, by the way, in the entire book of Revelation where Jesus is called the Son of God. Now, you might think, well, what's the big deal about the Son of God? 
Well, bring up the name the Son of God in our pluralistic society today here in America, and it's a very divisive claim. Oh, you believe in Jesus. Oh, well, what about all these other gods? See, we believe that from eternity, God has existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to say, so for us to say that Jesus is the Son of God means that when we worship him, all hail King Jesus, for example, we sang that song, uh, we are truly worshiping God himself. And so this is God speaking to this church at Thyatira. And this verse says, listen up, folks, pay attention to what I have to say to the churches. Here's the second thing we know what Jesus knows about the churches. First of all, he praises the good in churches. I mean, if we invited Jesus to come today and ask him to preach, I have a feeling he'd say some good things about this place. And he has some good things to say about Thyatira. In many ways, Thyatira is the best of the four churches that we have gone through so far. Verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Now, this church at Thyatira had the good works of Ephesus, uh, along with uh, the love that Ephesus lacked. It had the perseverance of Smyrna, and it had the good theology of the majority of what was going on in Pergamum. And Jesus even says, you guys are doing even more than you did at first. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying, wow, your church calendar is really full. I don't think he's saying that at all. Instead, he's saying that this little congregation itself was growing in faith and love and hope, and that growth was seen in the way that they worshiped, the way that they served, and the way that they reached out to others. It, when I wrote those words, I, I, I was tempted to put a little side in. I'm going to put it in anyway. I hope he says that about us as well. That we worship and serve and reach out to other people. See, to Ephesus, Jesus said, you were strong, but now you're getting weak. To Thyatira, he says, you're good and you're getting better. So whatever else we can say about this town of Thyatira, the Lord clearly says that they're still making progress spiritually, advancing the gospel in a very unlikely place. But here's the third thing that Jesus does. Jesus exposes evil in the church. Now, I kind of get the willies when I think about that, when Jesus is going to come and expose the evil in the church. But it's the high praise in verse 19 that makes the rest so... So I guess unsettling. And it says somehow in the midst of this growth within this church, they had allowed a very ungodly woman to rise in the place of spiritual influence. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself what? A prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So the question is, just who is this woman? Uh, How did she rise to prominence in this church in an otherwise excellent congregation? Well, our Lord here is obviously talking to somebody real, even though Jezebel is likely not her name. Uh, but was an allusion to that wicked wife of King Ahab, uh, first mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 16. 
Now, let's go back a little bit into First Kings for a minute. Just who is this Jezebel? What was going on with her? Well, Jezebel, which in Hebrew, which her name is Baal exalts. In other words, who's going to give their child? You got a new baby girl. And what do you name her? Baal exalts. What a horrible name to give to a girl. Not to give to anybody. And she was the daughter, though, of a pagan king whose name was Eth Baal. Well, Baal begets more Baal worshippers. And when she married King Ahab, the king of Israel, she, she exerted such a, an evil influence that the entire nation of Israel turned to Baal worship. And under her influence, uh, evil was exalted. It was enthroned in the land so that her husband Ahab was considered... Uh, eviler, I don't know if there's such a word as that, more evil, what would that be, more evil, evil or whatever you want, uh, than all the kings who had ever come before him. So Jezebel, as a result, um, becomes a symbol for a seductive form of evil that not only allowed idolatry, but promoted it and not only uh, allowed idolatry, but encouraged it and rewarded it. Now, By claiming that she spoke for God. Um, well, we've got a problem here. I mean, this is a toxic mix here. But how could such a woman in this church gain power in Thyatira? Well, the answer is that simple little word, prophetess. Prophetess. Can anybody think of a good female prophetess in Scripture? I'll give you a clue. Luke 2, when Joseph and Mary brought who? Little baby Jesus to the temple. And who is there but Anna? That's the only female prophetess I can find in the New Testament. But she's a good one. Not like this evil gal. But by claiming to speak for God, she gained credibility with the gullible, untaught Christians in that community. She was no doubt pretty slick in her presentation, uh, extremely dangerous. Uh, with Jezebel, you could have it all. You could come to Jezebel's church and you could get salvation. You could get Jesus. You could get heaven. Uh, oh, by the way, you can get idol worship. Uh, you can have friendship with the world. And by the way, guilt-free sex. Sounds like a pretty good church, huh? Not really. And you could have it all under the guise of being a good Christian. And no doubt people packed the pews at Thyatira to listen to these messages. So in, uh, some no doubt ridiculed Bible teachers in Thyatira uh, as a bunch of narrow-minded fundamentalist killjoys. Like your pastor. <laughs> I'm not quite that way. Well, it worked for the Old Testament, Jezebel, and it worked for her namesake here in Thyatira. Now, I'm just going to pause here uh, to offer a solemn warning. And I had to write this in big, bold letters in my notes. But my solemn warning is for myself, but also for you today. And it's this. Be very, very, very wary of those who advertise themselves as prophets or prophetesses. Now, all I'm saying when I say that is it's one thing to be a Bible teacher. I know he's a Bible teacher. I hope that I'm a Bible teacher as well. It's one thing to be a Bible teacher or be a Bible teaching pastor, but it's something else 
to claim to receive, quote, special messages from God. And anyone who says such things takes upon themselves awful responsibility. That's one thing to say. This is what God had to say in Romans chapter 8. It's another thing to claim some sort of a dream or a vision that you've had from the Almighty that no one else knows about. And quite often, not even consistent with what the Bible says. So understand this. I'm not trying to pass any judgment on any particular person. But there are many false prophets in our world today who claim to have a word from the Lord. I've been at a gathering one time where a guy, in fact, I was at a church. I was doing a pastor's conference for Lent up in the state of Michigan a number of years ago. And I went to a kind of an all-black church. It was a lot of fun. I just chose it because the name of the church sounded really great, too. I don't know, it was not quite the church of what hap- what's happening now, but it was really cool. And the pastor looked just like Mike Singletary, the middle linebacker of the Chicago Bears. But uh, some guy stood up in the middle of the congregation and said, I have a word today from the Lord. And the pastor said, no, you don't. Sit down and shut up. <laughs> I thought, whoa, <laughs> that's pretty harsh, pretty harsh. But we have the word of God. And I would hope that the word of God is enough for us. Yet there's another question. How could such a woman be tolerated in this church for so long? And I don't really know for sure, but maybe she was related to one of the church leaders and they just wanted to give her a pass. Or uh, maybe the church leaders were afraid that if they actually confronted her, she would divide the congregation and people would leave. Or maybe they feared that if, uh, if we just tolerate her long enough, maybe she'd just go away. Or maybe they thought that it was a mark of grace to be really nice to her and uh, somehow we could win her to Jesus someday. Now, I really don't know the real answer, but it could be kind of a combination of all four. But what I'm saying is that the church gravely sinned by not confronting her and dealing with her. And it's frightening to consider this sort of thing happening in other, an otherwise strong congregation. There are a lot of people today who are tempted and succumb well, to go worship at St. Jezebel's Church or what's happening now, uh, where you can go to church and believe what you want to and you can do whatever you want to. Now, I wondered about reading something today, but I'm going to read it anyway. Anybody ever heard of the Sparkle Creed? Okay. This is something that's happening in a Lutheran church in Minnesota. Not a Missouri Synod Lutheran church, by the way but from what has always been kind of the liberal side, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, where they have a female pastor. And this is the, this is the creed. Now, we're going to use the Nicene Creed a little bit later. <laughs> we're not using the Sparkle one. Uh, but this is what she has her congregation standing and reciting on Sundays. I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. I believe in the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one white light and refracts it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. I believe in the church of everyday saints as numerous, creative, and resilient as patches on the AIDS quilt, whose feet are grounded in mud and whose eyes gaze at the stars in wonder. I believe in the calling to each of us that love is love is love is love, so beloved, let us love. I believe, glorious God, help my unbelief. Amen. 
I don't know, maybe some of you like that. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I didn't like that at all. I mean, that it, this is what happens when false doctrine, false preachers deviate from Scripture and bring it into the church. What's even worse is that people would stand up, and I've seen the YouTube video of all the people in church. They're all happy, clappy with this. And I find that amazingly sad. That takes us to our fourth point. Does Jesus know about this? You better believe he does, because Jesus judges evil in the church. Listen to these verses from 21 to 23. I have given her time. That's Jezebel. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I'll strike her children dead. Then all churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I'll repay each of you according to your deeds. Now when Jesus says, I will give her time to repent, he may mean that the church had already confronted her about her sinful behavior and she didn't respond. And while it's true that um, the patience of God is always meant to lead us to repentance, uh, I think God's patience, we need to remember, God's patience also has a limit to it. If we're persistent in sin, judgment day will always come. And the one piece of good news is that Jezebel is beyond redemption. Her followers are not. See, in this case, the judgment is spelled out. You cannot continue in spiritual adultery forever without facing God's judgment. That's a harsh word. But we need to understand that. I mean, first what happens, there is intense suffering. That was spelled out in verse 22. Uh, Her followers are going to die. That's the first part of verse 23. Uh, All the churches will know that God is serious about sin. That's the second part of verse 23. Now, I know that we can sit here and go, you know, wow, this is really harsh. These words must not be watered down, though. And no one can hide from those sins. That's what Jesus is saying. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's spelled out. that Your sin's going to find you out. If you don't believe it, I'm just going to quote from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, Let's go back to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. You're never going to hide from it. Or we jump into the New Testament, Luke chapter 12, 3. What you do in secret will be shouted from the housetops. What you do in the darkness is seen as if it were done at midnight. In other words, there's no way to hide your sin. You may think you do, but you can't. Not from God. Here's the fifth thing to think about. This is Jesus now is going to encourage his faithful followers. Verses 24 and 25. He says, now I say to the rest of you at Thyatira, these are the ones who are not following this Jezebel, for those of you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you, only hold on to what you have until I come. Now that little phrase, these so-called deep secrets, gives us a clue to what's kind of going on in this church. Jezebel had kind of con her people, uh, her followers, by promising them knowledge and experience that came from some combination of pagan ritual and Christian symbolism plus sexual experimentation. That's a weird combination. All under the banner of learning 
deep secrets. And guess what? False prophets love deep secrets. Do you love a secret? Oh, I bet I could find any number of you. I come up to you this morning and say, Ed, you want to hear a secret? Ed, well, well yeah. <laughs> we all kind of like secrets to some extent. Uh, but when you cloak the deep secrets with the veneer of what I call religiosity, it becomes even more attractive. You want to hear a really new secret I've learned about Jesus this last week? See, why be stuck with the Bible when you can enter into a world of direct images and signs and prophecies that give insight into this so-called hidden world that regular Christians don't have. I've actually met pastors like that who've actually told me, you know, someday maybe you'll learn what I've learned. And I said, apart from the Bible? And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he says, of course. That's when I said, feet don't fail me now. I don't need to hang around with that, that kind of guy. Now, when Jesus... Now, Jesus doesn't tell them to throw her out of the church. Evidently, she was so deeply embedded in this place, he, he said, I'm going to take care of her personally. And this presumably means that Jesus was going to come in some sort of physical judgment leading to her death and the death of many of her followers. And if you don't think that happens elsewhere in Scripture, if this is the only place, let me refer you to, to a couple of other stories. Anybody remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5? Lied about their church offering? <laughs> Both of them were dead and buried the same day. Or how about another one? St. Paul. Paul writing to uh, the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians talks about people who did not take communion very seriously ate and drank and got drunk at the communion table and dropped dead. See, Jesus has only one command to his followers, and that's hold on. Hold on to the truth. Hold on to the scripture. Don't join people like Jezebel. I mean, godliness is measured by holding on when it would be a whole lot easier to give up. Here's the last, last thing I'm going to talk about, the sixth thing. Jesus promises to share his victory with us. We could have sung that song today, Victory in Jesus. I haven't sung that one in a long time, but that'd be a really great one, too. I always remember V-I-C-T-O-R-Y, victory, victory, that's our cry. I've actually preached a sermon on that. Vision, integrity, commitment, tenacity, obedience, readiness to serve, and yoked with the Holy Spirit. That's victory. Here's the promise, verses 26-28. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I'll give authority over the nations. He'll rule them with an iron scepter. He'll dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I've received authority from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. In other words, he is saying, those people who remain faithful to the word of God, who remain faithful one day, will actually reign with Jesus in heaven, and we will share in his victory. And we know... We, we, we will know him deeply and personally because he is that morning star that lights up heaven. Now, before I close, I got something else I get off my chest <laughs> that just comes along with this. I think we need to we need to consider the implications of this particular passage. I don't think anyone disputes that we live in a kind of a sex saturated society today. So let me ask this question. Why is pornography such a big business? 
My answer is because you can make billions and billions and billions of dollars by offering a temporal fix for the inner emptiness that you can't find elsewhere. But I've got news for you. The Bible says that even though a lot of people have tried it, you cannot, you cannot ever improve on God's plan for sexual happiness. And the, I talked a little bit about this. One man and one woman faithfully joined together. So I, we don't want to miss the point here. God takes sexual sin, particularly when it gets involved with Christianity somehow, uh, seriously, he judges those who practice it, people who tolerate it, people who laugh at it, people who make light of it, like it's no big deal. And I know as a pastor, what I'm saying today would not be very popular in some churches around the world. Uh, but I think we just need to keep the lines clear between the church and the world in the realm of some things such as sexual ethics. That's very clear in the scripture. It's kind of like saying, okay, it's not that I don't care what goes on out there, because I do care what goes on out there. But I don't have to be a party of what goes on out there. See, left to itself, the world will always choose self-indulgence rather than God-indulgence. But it's the church's job to shine the pure light of truth in the midst of darkness. We didn't settle on this spot for no good reason. We knew what was here when we planted this place. There's a lot of darkness in this community. Now, if the church lives like the world, why on earth would the world ever want to be a part of any church? But it's the church's job to shine the pure light of Jesus. I mean, any doctrine that makes it easy to sin or redefines sin or any doctrine that makes sin less sinful, it just comes from the pit of hell. So is there any grace in this? Sure there is. What do we say to people who have made repeated mistakes in their life over and over and over again? Now, you can raise your hand. How many of you have never made the same mistake over and over and over again? Now, you can confess that you know, you've always burned the pancakes all the time. Okay, no big sin. That's not going to keep you out of heaven. But how many of you have made the same sin over and over again. And we all do. So do I. Is there grace for you too? Is it, is there grace for the people who sin over and over and over again? Yes. Or more pointed, could Jezebel have actually found forgiveness? Sure she could have. Well, we're not really left to wonder about it. Look at what Jesus said again in verse 21. I have given her time to repent of her immorality. There it is. But she's unwilling. Evidently, she preferred her easy version of sex plus idolatry to doing the hard work of repentance. And it is hard to repent. It's hard to admit we're wrong. Now, we, you know, we talk about brokenness all the time. It's hard to admit that sometimes. You know, when I put these things together, sometimes when I read them again, I kind of go, yeah. Might as well be talking to me. <laughs> well, that's probably who I was thinking of when I was doing this. She had a chance, but she was unwilling. But we do find in that solemn statement though, kind of the hope of the gospel. See, if you're willing, you can be changed. I don't care who you are or what you've done. If you're willing, you can be changed. If you're willing, you can be made clean again. 
If you're willing, you can have a brand new start. If you're willing, your sins can be washed away completely. That's what the words of restoration are all about. If you say today that you are saved, guess what? We've all been saved by what? The free grace of God. We do not deserve it. To those who are scarred by the wrong choices in the past, if you're willing, you can be forgiven. You can be made clean. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I mean, how many times have I ever said that in my life? How many times have you ever said that in your life? Now, you may still live with certain consequences of your past. There's no doubt about that. I think all of us made some big mistakes in the past. And I'm looking around. I think I have more past than any of you here. (laughs) That's not to brag. I'm just saying I've piled them up over the years. And guess what? There are certain consequences for that. They are. But you can have the burden of guilt removed from your heart. That's a big difference. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians. I don't know if I have this on the screen or not. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old, and I'm happy to say the old berry is gone. (laughs) The new one has come. I think we can all say that. So think of it this way. You can have Jezebel and the cheap thrills of this world and feel sick to your stomach every day when you wake up. Or you can have Jesus right now, a new life right now, forgiveness right now, real pleasure right now. And one day you will rise to shine just like the morning star. And the best way to end this message is he or she that has ears to hear. Let them hear.